Whoever you are, we welcome you. Wherever you come from, we welcome you. My name is Carolyn Schlemmer. It's my privilege to serve as a member of the worship arts team who gets to help lead this service or help do this service. It's led by our Cal Fry, music by Hal Walker, and, direct, and also help from our director of religious education, Colleen Teeley. Taylor. Thank you. I'll get that right. Let there be light. The light of joy, the light of happiness, and the light of contentment. May it illuminate our paths and fill our lives with peace. And let there be dark, for it is from our dark places that we are brought forward. We are tried and tested and impelled toward growth. It is in these places that we realize compassion and learn to love. And there was day and there was night, and there was joy and there was sorrow, and it was good. We enter this sanctuary for kindness and comfort. 
May rough-worn hands and aching backs be healed. We enter this meeting house of hope for equality. May those who labor to survive live to know justice. We enter this meeting house of love and vocation. May our bonds of solidarity be strengthened. We enter this meeting house of courage and friendship. May we proceed hand in hand toward freedom. Come, let us worship together. share with you an excerpt from a sermon called Confessions of a Blue Collar Unitarian Universalist by Reverend Don Boudreaux, who speaks, by the way, with a little bit of an Appalachian accent. He begins with an excerpt from, of some uh, fake letters to a uh, status guru um, from a book called Class, A Guide Through the American Status System by Paul Fussell. It was written in the 90s, which you can tell from some of the references. It starts out, Dear Madam, I am an Englishman planning to emigrate to the United States. Can you help me by explaining the class system there? Signed, Tony Blair. Dear Mr. Blair, says Madam. No, you'd never get it. It's much too complicated. You must be born and nurtured here, but you should have no worries because the fact of British birth raises your class by at least one notch, no matter how nondescript and forthright you may actually be. Dear Madam, what about the class aspects of standing on the sidewalk in a large city and eating a hot dog bought from a street peddler presiding over one of those little carts? Signed, Puzzled. Dear Puzzled, Oh, only people who are very expensively dressed or terribly good-looking can do this without impairing their status. Middle-class people demean themselves further by doing this sort of thing. Dear Madam, I have been living in Connecticut for 30 years and find I must move to the Midwest. Will I suffer a loss of caste? Signed, Nervous. Dear Nervous, how can you even ask? You'll never be able to show your face in civilized company again, but at least you're not moving to Texas. <laughs> Dear Madam, my bank teller embarrasses me terribly by saying at the end of the transaction, have a nice day. I don't know what I'm supposed to say back. Can you help? Signed, Sincere. Dear Sincere, I suppose you could say you too or have one yourself, although that last, like, have one on me, would sound a bit flippant. You should never say, mind your own business. That would be very rude. 
The best response to have a nice day is the one I think divide, the one devised I think by a British friend of mine who says, thank you, but I have other plans. <laughs> That's perfectly polite, and yet it leaves no doubt that you are not in that person's social class. So we have spoofed the class system. And yet classism as a term designating, designating the thought and actions of some who are negatively critical of others because they are in a different social class from their own can be a most insidious form of discrimination. So over the years, says Reverend Boudreau, when I have occasionally come out as a blue-collar Unitarian Universalist to those whose backgrounds have been similar, I also try to assure them, despite the fact that they feel different and they don't know if they'll stay in a church of such high brows and rich people and talkers and doers, I assure them that being a Unitarian Universalist is not about anything other than the desire to be free to question assumptions and discover truths for oneself. It is about being open to who they are and open to hearing differing opinions and accepting different lifestyles from their own. But I also tell them in a sad and longing way that this free faith movement could be much larger if those who are currently in the pews and pulpits would reach out to those who might very well be unlike themselves in most ways, except for the fact that they too believe in non-doctrinal, non-dogmatic, non-creedal approach to religion, which propounds an ethical approach to living on this planet. There's a UUA report from the Commission on Appraisals. This was done in 2001, and this UUA report says, while our principles affirm that we welcome someone who's very different from us, many of our members feel we should recruit among those who match the demographic characteristics of our current membership. New members should fit in or should be like us for us to grow, and therefore there's little challenge to confront change. From 1950 till 60, many Unitarian Congregationalists congregations said they wanted to be diverse, in theory, had a faith that was open to all, or a religion for one world, as Reverend Kenneth Patton once said, yet the one world they promoted looked very much like themselves. Our yearning for diversity does not include differences of class. There's a long history of assumptions that people of different classes, cultural groups, and ethnic backgrounds would not be attracted to our rational, liberal faith. So our public expression of a democratic faith open to all does not find practical application among us. Therefore, the Commission on Appraisal concluded our practice, quote, does not always match the, the principles we preach. Back now to Reverend Boudreau. Truly, my friends, there should be room at the table for all of those of like mind and heart concerning things liberally religious, where what you are your sociological class is not important, but who you are as a person is. Yes, Unitarian Universalists are varied, even if some will never know they really are Unitarian Universalists. Had I not stumbled upon this proud faith, he says, when I was a teenager from the blue-collar side of the American spectrum, I do not know if ever I would have discovered it. Truly, my dream, indeed my vision for our religious movement is to be in a community of both and, 
not either or, where there is room for all of us beyond classification. I'd like to do a reading with you all. It's number 440 in the back of the hymnal. These words by Philip Hewitt have a somewhat old-fashioned flavor, although the sentiment, I think, still lives today. Hewitt is of my father's generation, but he has ministered to UU congregations in St. Catharines, Montreal, Vancouver, and Victoria in Canada, Ipswich in England, Adelaide, Australia, and Auckland, New Zealand. The man certainly gets around. I'll begin and then you can follow. From the fragmented world of our everyday lives, we gather together in search of wholeness. By many cares and preoccupations, by diverse and selfish aims, are we separated from one another and divided within ourselves. Yet we know that no branch is utterly severed from the tree of life that sustains us all. We cherish our oneness with those around us and the countless generations that have gone before us. We would hold fast to all of good we inherit, even as we would leave behind us the outworn and the false. We would escape from bondage to the ideas of our own day and from the delusions of our own fancy. Let us labor in hope for the dawning of a new day without hatred, violence, and injustice. Let us nurture the growth in our own lives of the love that has shone in the lives of the greatest of men and women, the rays of whose lamps still illumine our way. In this spirit we gather, in this spirit we pray. I am an unlikely candidate to be speaking before you today celebrating Labor Day. Beyond the American practice of seizing another day out of the week to drink beer and have a barbecue, I can claim only a tenuous link to the labor movement we recognize this weekend. I was a proud card-carrying member of the National Education Association for all of one year. And I thank my United Steelworkers in-laws for not scoffing at my paltry experience. But I'll press on. I have an eclectic interest in history. Mine was a classroom dutifully churning out each and every battle in great detail and then rushing through all of that boring politics stuff to get to the next war and the next set of battles. But I love the quirkiness of history. And some of the stories we didn't cover in my high school classes are still quite important. And one of the oddest corners of my interest contains the Wobblies. The Industrial Workers of the World was an international labor union that was formed in 1905 in Chicago. The name is an unfortunate one in that the acronym is almost as difficult to say as the name itself, and it's likely that IWW became I Wobbly Wobbly, or 
wobbly for short. It was also convenient that it was a term of derision for a group of people that were by design rather disorganized. The Wobblies came together out of socialist and anarchist roots. And they grew up in that dangerous era when striking workers were more likely to be killed by police forces or hired mercenaries than not. Nonetheless, they succeeded, perhaps beyond their dreams in their first couple decades, declining in membership and influence with the growth of the AFL and CIO that we know better today. The major difference between the IWW and these later organizations is their organization. We know of the United Steelworkers, the Brotherhood of Teamsters, the Carpenters, Electrical Workers, Machinists, and on and on. These later unions and many others came to be organized by skill and trade, meaning that any given company could wind up negotiating with several unions. This also means that management could play one union off against another, and it was that much more difficult for an entire workforce to take action together to strike. The Wobblies instead sought to organize an entire industry. Their early successes were in the Western mining camps, when they were able to shut down mining operations by uniting unskilled laborers, equipment operators, miners, and the support staff that it was all necessary to operate a mine. And if one mine went on strike, all of the operations of that employer or sometimes all mining in a region went on strike with them. The motto of the union is my title for today, an injury to one is an injury to all. They didn't separate by trade, gender, background, or even color. The solidarity of the working class is everything and capitalism was their devil. This approach is a challenging one. It asks those workers with different skills or even in different industries to see common ground. It can demand sacrifices of those who are poorly equipped to make them. Striking miners were machine gunned by the Colorado State Police in 1927. The Wobblies were unrepentantly Marxist when this philosophy was more frightening than fascism. Other unions were more capitalist in reaction and were more accepted as a result. Further, this communist anarchist organization made it hard for the IWW to, well, organize themselves they were opposed to signing labor contracts on principle. The workers would meet together, agree on what they would do, and present that to management. They became, as you might expect, beset with internal conflict, schism, factions, 
leading the way for trade unions to pick up the pieces and become the union landscape familiar to us today. But as Tom Lehrer puts it, they have all the good songs. The wobbly organizer and songwriter Joe Hill was responsible for many songs of union and labor sticking together and the evils of bosses. It's his photo that's on the cover of your order of service. And his last message to the union before his execution was, don't waste any time mourning, organize. By the way, the Wobblies are still here. The IWW holds itself as a union for all workers, or one big union, as the old timers would put it. One of the actions the IWW is invested in today is the national prison strike, working to ease jailhouse conditions and help us recognize prison industrial labor as indentured servitude by a different name. So why am I so enamored with an obscure union with unpopular communist tendencies? Well, there are many reasons, but what is it that keeps even this little remnant of the IWW alive? I see a message there, one that has resonance with the struggles of today's political landscape. Perhaps it has a resonance right here within this room. It's easy for us to identify with like-minded folks, with folks who have similar jobs, similar backgrounds, and similar beliefs to our own. The United States has a history emphasizing individualism, and you can argue that Unitarian Universalists have adapted this to a fault. This helps to color our reception to ideas and organizations seeking to unite us outside of our comfort zone. And yes, this history of tribalism that has led us to shun immigrants from certain countries and regions, to isolate folks of different religions, and to persecute and prosecute people of color is clearly one of the problems that our society is facing. I've been guilty of some of these feelings. Perhaps you have too from time to time. It's easy to look down on those with less education than we might have, or who work with their hands if we type all day instead. It's easy to avoid those who have different lives than we do, whether different families or across different generations, or even those who listen to music that we simply don't understand. Sometimes we see these fault lines inside our Unitarian Universalist communities, and sadly, often we fail to bridge that gap. But often these deep divides we see are really only amount to ruts in the ground or a curb that we must step over to reach the other side. We are challenged to remember to search for the common ground that unites us and not get tripped up by the differences. This is not something we do once. It's something we try to do day by day, task by task, step by step, 
friend by friend by friend. We do not do this to grow the church, but because it is right and because we need it. Reverend Martin Luther King could have been a wobbly. His was a message of inclusion and economic justice that threatened the comfortable tribalism of employers and the working class. He alluded to this in a sermon delivered just two months before his death. He described the time he was talking with the jailers in Birmingham saying, The white wardens and all enjoyed coming around the cell to talk about the race problem. And they were showing us where we we were so wrong demonstrating. And they were showing us where segregation was so right. And they were showing us where uh, intermarriage was so wrong. And I would get to preaching and we would get to talking calmly because they wanted to talk about it. And then we got down one day to the point to talk about where they lived and how much they were earning. And when those brothers told me what they were earning, I said, now you know what? You ought to be marching with us. You're just as poor as we are. And I said, you are put in this position of supporting your oppressor because through prejudice and blindness, you fail to see that the same forces that oppress Negroes in American society oppress poor white people. And all you are living on is the satisfaction of your skin being white and the instinct of thinking that you are somebody big because you are white. And you're so poor you can't send your children to school. You ought to be out here marching with every one of us every time we have a march. And Reverend King carried this idea through to the larger world, saying this is why we are drifting. And we are drifting there because nations are caught up with the instinct, I must be first. I must be supreme. I must be greatest. Our nation must rule the world. And I am sad to say that the nation in which we live is the supreme culprit. And I'm going to continue to say it to America because I love this country too much to see the drift that it has taken. What Martin Luther King saw in 1964 sadly is still relevant in 2018. But Dr. King was not ready to give up. He had seen advances, bought with great struggle, true, but hopeful nonetheless. He spoke of keeping hold to that stone of hope to be quarried from the mountain of despair. The Wobblies fought in the mines, knowing that individually their cause would be lost, but together they could succeed. In the darkness, miners' lamps cast a light that others could see and draw strength from. There is more hope. We each hold a stone of hope. Labor unions can be like churches. They too are places where we gather together in mutual support. 
if we allow ourselves to do that. Places where we support each other so that when we find life overwhelming, we can find the courage and hope enough to continue. Here is where we recharge. There is where our energy belongs. Our strength lies in our coming together. You are needed. Will you join us? There are people in this country who work hard every day. Not for fame or fortune do they strive, but the fruits of their labor are worth more than their pay. It's time a few of them were recognized. Hello, Detroit. quickly the flame of truth may be extinguished, how easily the chalice of fellowship broken. Let us be vigilant in faith, keep peace in our hearts, and make care for one another the watchword of our lives together. So our light goes out, 
everywhere into the world. Another way in which unions can be like churches is in singing simple songs together for inspiration. Step by step, the longest march can be won. You are needed. This is your invitation into the great messy wonder that is life. It is your invitation to connect with all beings. It is your invitation to have your heart broken, opened, and filled again. It is your invitation to live fully amid pain and pleasure, joy and sorrow. You are needed. Heed the call. Thank you.